I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. Today, I'm very excited. We have a guest on. His name is Legend Skinner. He's uh, one of the probably youngest guests that we've had on our our show. And he's going to be discussing a topic that I think is very hard to talk about, but also really important, especially today. It has to do with mental illness, an attempted suicide, and the fallout of that situation, what led up to it, and um, what he's learned because of it. I I think the courage that he has to take this on and share publicly with this is huge. And I appreciate it from a standpoint of I have children that have dealt with mental illness. I have had my own bouts at different times. I think today with the world that we're living in, the things that we're having to deal with, the pandemic, just the tensions in our society, there's just so much facing everybody. And I feel like this is really a timely conversation to have because I think that there's a lot of hidden uh, mental illness happening. And, you know, it's unfortunate we have people making the choice to take their lives and for a variety of, of reasons, but we don't often get to talk to someone who attempted and survived. Yeah. So legend, welcome to our show and tell us about you. Um, so my name is Ledger Skinner. I was born into a family of now seven. I have a twin brother. I was born moments after him and I'm the middle child. I am 18 years old, born in 2003 in January, beginning of uh, 2003. Um, my whole life, I was uh, treated with um, unconditional love from my family, where they would support me in anything I really wanted to do, and they would always be there for me. Yet, I was um, finding myself unlovable and um, unworthy of life and the love that I was receiving. And I'm still trying to grasp the the reason why I am worthy of this love and why uh, I deserve to be alive. Wow, Ledger, that, uh, I mean, that's a really, um, there's a lot in that. I want to ask you a question. Did you feel that way as a young child or did you start to feel that way more as you got into your teens? I, I love that you prefaced it with that your family loved you and you had that unconditional love and yet you didn't feel that you could 
received that or were worthy of that. Was that your whole life or more recently in your teen years? Yeah, so that was basically my life. It started to get pretty bad uh, in the beginning of junior high. I would go to sleep starting to tell myself why I was unloved and why the people around me that love me would be fine if I were to pass away. Um, So I would kind of convince myself even more and more that that was the case. My goodness. So tell us about what, um, I guess, tell us these last couple of years or what, how that maybe escalated and, and where you found yourself. Yeah. So I started high school. I never really liked school in general. I didn't like any of the subjects really. And I felt judged and hated everywhere I went. I would be scared to walk in the hallways because I would think people would look at me and and just judge me just by seeing me. And then in 2019, in the summer, going into my junior year of high school, I uh, I ended up trying to take my life in a very dramatic way. There were attempts before then that I had survived weren't as extreme and uh, I went to the psych ward once before this for my mental health, but I ended up uh, driving off a large hill trying to end my life in my car. And obviously I survived and it was like, I'm still baffled. I was very baffled when I had uh, landed and, um, you know, realized I had survived uh, yeah, my mental health, it's been going on for a while. And when I got in a crash, I kind of just got to the point where I told myself, this is not going to get better. Like, this is this is how it's going to be for the rest of my life. And I can either wait until I'm on my deathbed, dying of old age, and wish I went through with it, or I can do it then. And I decided to go with it then. Tell us a little bit back up. You said there had been some other attempts or other other points in your life. How old were you when you first maybe concretely thought about taking your own life? Can you put an age to that? Let's see. I uh, first time I went to the hospital, I was in eighth and ninth grade. Wow. So I was hurting myself and talking myself down, like when I would go to sleep every night telling myself I'd be fine. Uh, Maybe my family members would be fine with me passing away. That was probably in seventh or eighth grade. So it started pretty young when I, when I wanted to do this, although I didn't start really acting upon it until later in my life. Did you always have that negative self-talk? I mean, I, I know your mom and dad and, and you do have a great and supportive family. I mean, where does that negative self-talk, where do you think the seed of that began? Do you have any insight to that? I, as a kid, I was always trying to reassure myself by helping others. And even with that being the case, I was always thinking like I could have done better. Like even people that didn't know me and didn't know what happened at all, I would still feel bad for letting them down. So, yeah, I started at a really young age where I would just, uh, I would always be trying to help people. And even when doing so, I would feel like I was doing the wrong thing. Wow. 
can you, I, as a mom, I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you as a mom. You're just a little bit older than my oldest child. I have seven. Um, I have a history of, of suicide and mental illness in my side of the family as well as in my husband's side of the family. And so these conversations are not just important culturally and societally to me. They're, they're very personal. I'm wondering, you said you ended up in the hospital for the first time around that eighth or ninth grade. So clearly at that point, your parents were aware of these attempts to hurt yourself. Do you think they knew prior to that? Um, do you think they were aware of how you viewed yourself or how you felt or what you were, were struggling with? Or was that hospitalization kind of a shocker to them? What, trying to kind of see that bigger picture from the parent point of view. My family has dealt with their kids with mental illness prior to me. But I remember I was going to my dentist and my mom saw some cuts on my wrist. And that that was kind of, kind of like an aha moment telling her, like, oh, my, my kid is struggling. And um, I remember that, her realizing that was super hard. Yeah, I I think it's really important that we emphasize what you have said and what Michelle reiterated, that you had a loving family. Um, I think so often we as a society get very um, judgmental of, of mental illness, of suicide attempts, of, of people who harm themselves, and we think, oh, it must be because they had this horrific background or because they were involved in drugs and alcohol or because this or that. We we want to package it into something explainable and definable because then we can feel like, well, that's not my problem and that's not going to be my kid's issue and that's not going to ever happen to anyone I love when in reality all of us, any of us, could could face this and could deal with this. And I can't imagine for your mom what that might have been like. Can you talk a little bit about what – did you reach out for help? Did you feel you had help available to you between that first hospitalization and when you tried driving off of that cliff? Can you walk us through a little bit of what that journey was like for those few years? Yeah, so I got out of uni at the University of Utah, a really high-end uh, mental hospital, and I got out on Christmas Eve. So I happened to get out the day before Christmas, and I was either going to go through that rough patch, also missing Christmas and being stuck in the hospital and not seeing any of my family. Well, I would see them, but I wouldn't celebrate Christmas normally. But I luckily got out and a lot of them showed me love. And even then, I was still very hesitant with opening up with my feelings and how I really felt. But a big step in my mental health was opening up to my parents, especially because I started to realize, especially after my crash, how much they cared. Um, So opening up to them, and even if there were no words exchanged, just going up and crying in their arms, it meant a lot to know that they were there for me mentally, no matter the situation. I think one of the most profound things, and and how I came across your stories, I, I know your dad, James, and Jamie, they have incredible hearts. They do a service project every year. Remind me of their, mm-hmm. um, it's Winter's... Winter Foundation. Winter Foundation, which is their youngest adopted child's name, right? And Yeah, well, we, we started doing that. You know, it's been going, I think, like longer than I've been alive. So Yeah, it's been going yeah. a long time. I remember my husband and I went and helped wrap presents and deliver them one year and uh, load up trailers and stuff like that. 
Anyways, an amazing giving family. And um, his dad shared it on his Facebook wall. And when you shared your story, you talked about those negative thought patterns that you had. They started young and you started not trying, but you started convincing yourself that it was just true that everyone would be better off without you. Is that right? Yeah. So I drove off that hill thinking that this was the best option, not only for me, but for everyone around me. I I came to the conclusion, I told myself that everyone would have been happier if I went through with it. And that was a big key part of me wanting to do it and why in the moment I wasn't hesitant to um, try to better the world for myself. I think that's another important thing to point out. Again, as a society, we tend to view suicide as so selfish. How could they do that to me? How could they do that to their mom, to their loved ones? When in reality, Ledger, what you said, you weren't just doing what you felt would give you the release and the escape from your own anguish. You were in such a state, you genuinely believed that's what would be better for your loved ones, which of course, as your loved ones, they're looking on saying, no, 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 that would be the worst. And yet... That is that is exactly the definition of mental illness, that you would see it that way and not recognize that we will never be better off without you, you know. And I would love to know how how do you view that now? Do you still struggle with those thoughts that maybe they would be better off without you or have, have you been able to recognize they they would not? Or where where are your thoughts still, you know, a year or two after that that larger attempt I imagine the mental illness didn't just go away because you survived that. Yeah, so there are probably uh, two tragic uh, moments in my past, which I would tie these to. So when I got my crash, I uh, got out of the car, climbed up the hill, and passed out. I totally blacked out at the top of the hill, and um, I woke up in a stretcher. I heard... Mm a very distinct crying in the background and I look up and it happened to be my mom who happened to find me early, um, early uh, with the police there, but she, she happened to get there earlier than most. And, um, she was curled in a police officer's arms and she was just bawling hysterically thinking she would never see her little boy alive walking around again. And, um, that moment really, really sticks with me. It's very emotionally, I don't know how to put that, but it's a big, it's a big uh, memory in my life that I would go back to whenever I was feeling like that would be the end result for me is I would think like this wouldn't mess up my family, mental health. Like, like it would not be good for people around me. And then I also, I happened to be at my friend's when he took his life out of his house. And it was hard to see him. It's a very traumatic event, especially witnessing it. And so, like, I do not judge him. Like, although the situation is horrible, I do not judge him. I have been there. I, I, I know what the thought is of this is what's supposed to happen. Like, this... Like, it's hard to keep on fighting when you don't think you're going to win and you're exhausted from fighting. Yeah. So, like, I don't blame him. I don't hate harm him. I don't, nothing like that. I totally understand. Well, I, 
<clears throat> I have no idea with mental health to the severity and like exactly what he was thinking because each person varies differently and dramatically. But I do understand the thoughts of wanting to end his life and how hard it is to fight those thoughts, especially Absolutely. for how long he was fighting it. When we come back, we're going to talk about those thoughts and combating those thoughts and the things that you've been doing to get yourself better, to get yourself in in healthier thinking patterns when we come back right after this break. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. And we're back with Ledger. Ledger, uh, just a big topic here. Mm-hmm. Big, heavy topic to, to talk about. Um, I think as parents listening, we've seen our kids struggle. Today, in the past year and a half, two years, we've really seen kind of the fabric of our foundation of everyday life change. That is hard. It's hard on kids. It's hard on everybody. I'd love to hear if you're willing to talk about it. Let's talk about after that accident. You say you're, you see your mother with the police there. You were able to walk away, which was by and large a miracle that not only that you survived, but that you literally walked away. Can you walk us through kind of some of that after the accident? Where, where were your thoughts then? Where are your thoughts now? Tell us maybe what that journey looks like. Again, you you survived the suicide attempt. Your family, everyone who loves you, we're profoundly grateful. But that doesn't mean you've just flipped the switch and you don't struggle anymore. Can you walk us through that part of the journey? Yeah. So I was in the actual hospital for about four days, so I wasn't in good condition. But mm-hmm. I did survive. And then I went to the psych ward itself, and I was there for another four or five days. And then I finally got out, and I was um, – they were highly considering bringing me to a residential place where I would stay longer term to make sure that they can try to manage my mental health. I didn't really have my cell phone. I wasn't really talking to friends. You know, my mom was really worried about me. I had to sleep upstairs instead of in my room. Um, and I, after seeing my mom and uh, seeing my fa- having my family members come and visit me at the hospital, like I said before, I, I realized just a fraction of the pain that I caused my family. And um, it got to the point where it's like, I don't care how bad I have to suffer. I, I do not want to put my family through that. So I was, for, it's 
then it was probably about a year and a half. I highly wanted to end my life, but I did not want to hurt my family. So I did not end up hurting myself, planning to attempt or anything since my crash because I knew how it would affect my family. And I kind of just survived. Did it help quiet those voices that are saying you'd be better off, they would be better off? Because you saw firsthand that is not better off. Yes. I, um, after seeing my family and how they, how it affected them, my head shift, although I wasn't happy and I was still having these suicidal thoughts and all these mental illness problems, I did realize that if I did go through with it, it, w- it would not be good for the people around me. So yeah, that was the big switch, but it still took a long time to get out of the headspace of wa- still wanting to do it. Can you tell us how you got out or tried to stay out of that headspace? You mentioned you were considering or your family was considering putting you in a residential treatment. Sounds like maybe you didn't go that route. Have you found a counselor or a support group or some type of uh, proactive steps you're taking that help you um, with with that thinking, with that perspective, and with that struggle? Yeah, so I've gone through multiple therapists and a ton of different medication trying to figure out what's best for me. And a couple of weeks before my crash, um, my parents knew I was really struggling, and they were grasping at straws, trying to figure out something that might help me. And so I ended up getting prescribed to a very strong medication called ketamine. And it's a big, it's a, it's a strong medication and it, it helped a little bit, but not enough to stop me from crashing. But then after the crash, I find it even more beneficial because it helps a lot with PTSD. And I had a lot of PTSD from like being in a car or driving with friends or even if I was just in the passenger seat, I would have horrible PTSD that the ketamine would help me with. But then I would I went through multiple therapists. I had a psychiatrist. I at the time I had gone to the hospital, then I went to the hospital again for my crash. So I had all these tools at my disposal that I wasn't really using. Like I kind of realized, like I need to, I need to change my lifestyle, my headset. Like I, even if I keep on doing these medications, even if I keep on going to the psychiatrist and the therapist, like it's a lot of the work is with myself that I need to work on to change my perspective. Yeah. But so yeah, I worked a lot how to get myself out of a dark headspace, which was a key thing that I learned after my friend passing because at nighttime I would find myself, you know, my phone off, no sound, and I would find myself in my dark thoughts where I couldn't really control where they would go. So that was a big key part is to get me out of this spiraling headspace to the point where I wouldn't want to do that. And what kind of tools are those like what did you do so i think my main one that i would do is well first of all at nighttime even not at nighttime but mostly at nighttime when i was trying to go to sleep you know i'd close my eyes and the first thing i would see uncontrollably was my friend 
you know, just dead. So it was it was super hard to just close my eyes and even go to sleep. So I had to like kick myself, like force myself out of that headspace to make it so I wasn't thinking about that, even though I didn't have any distractions like my phone and like TV when I was trying to go to sleep. So I do this now, and even though I don't have PTSD from that, if I find myself talking down to me, a big part of my mental health is self-hatred. And so if I, let's say I was just saying weird comments or thinking about my past that I judge myself for, I would immediately tell myself, you know, don't think about that. Like, like I would tell myself, do not put that in your head. And then to keep it out of my head, I would start counting one through a hundred. And that kind of sounds stupid, but it distracted my brain. It was super simple. And it would allow me to keep my head off of these negative thoughts and on this one subject. So then I could keep my head space out of there or I, or it would help me fall, fall asleep. Wow. I, I keep thinking of, of what you're telling us this struggle and in this struggle, I'm hearing tools of resilience and kind of your self-awareness. I don't know if we want to jump into that point of view from this right now. I keep thinking of the word perspective and how perspective plays into this struggle we all have to, to keep our thoughts positive or to keep our hope intact. And some of us struggle more than others. And some of us have, uh, you know, bigger battles to fight, but the perspective of you thinking your family would be better off without you and how that perspective changed the moment you had a perspective of your weeping mother thinking you were gone and the perspective you had after losing your friend and, and the perspective of, of recognizing it, the, the work to be done is within you and not, um, you know, it can't really come from an outside source. I love that you have developed the tool and even the, the simple tool of counting. I think sometimes when we have these struggles and problems in life, we're looking for really big solutions. We want some giant thing we can do or buy or prescribe that'll fix it. When really you start to count and maybe that distracts you and how powerful that simple step can be and not to discount those simple steps that can help our perspective or help our our, our mindset and, and help our own mental health. Yeah, I, you know, I hear a lot of tools in that as well. And, you know, we hear a lot about positive thinking or positive attitude or, or whatever, those kind of things. And that's all well and good. But when you are really struggling with negative self-talk, you really have to start replacing that. But I think it's, I think you have to start by the first step and say, I need to be kind to myself. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, it's definitely a key component to start changing your mindset to have positive thoughts but to start that you have to get the negative thoughts out of your head right they they are consistently there uncontrollably so yeah that's what i did with counting and like i said it sounds stupid but it is probably my favorite tool that i have in my arsenal of mental illness weapons yeah you know i don't think it sounds stupid it it's sounds like it's such an easy thought right like it's such an it easy is. thing to do like oh that's easy but really when you're having those negative thoughts i'm sure i'm sure there's a little internal battle that happens first before that counting really starts to like quiet down that other voice that is so loud in your head 
Yeah, sometimes the counting wouldn't do it, and I would have to imagine an object with each number I set. So, like, for example, if I count one, I, I picture one apple, or one, two, three, four, five, like, I picture five apples. But, yeah, it definitely wasn't easy to let that distract me from uh, my thoughts and PTSD. But after doing it every night, it comes pretty natural now just to kick to that tool when I'm trying to go to sleep and I'm having those thoughts. I love, I, I just wrote down the words you said, arsenal, that you have an arsenal of tools and sometimes this tool works and sometimes that tool and that at first those tools might be hard to use or they feel foreign or uncomfortable and yet when you keep going and keep going, it comes naturally. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here and then come back and talk about how you use that arsenal in your battle for resilience and how all of us listening can do the same and maybe not overthink it and look for the big giant solution, but some of those smaller things. But that it is a battle. It can be a daily battle for a lot of people, but that there is an arsenal of tools available. We might have to get creative and, and help each other find those. But I look forward to talking about how you use that arsenal to find the resilience as you keep going one day at a time. We'll be right back. All right, and we're back. Ledger, talk to us about resilience. What what does it look like? What does that battle look like? How do you use your arsenal of tools? Maybe some of the other tools that help you help us understand what resilience can look like in your mindset and in, in those of us who know other people who are struggling with with mental illness or suicide ideation or just the day-to-day struggles of life. Yeah, so it took a long period of time to really kick myself out of this mental health basically grave I was digging myself. I was digging myself in this hole deeper and deeper. It's the farther you dig yourself down, the harder it is to get out. I kind of decided like I I need to change this. Like this is not a way to live. I did not want to be on my deathbed wishing that my crash had succeeded. So I decided to work on myself and um this took a while but I found a lot of tools to help myself get out of these head spaces. And a big part of this is was realizing the effects that I have caused my loved ones. And so just recently I reached out to all my family members and asked how my crash affected them individually. And um, I used that as I did that because if I were to be in such a bad headspace that I was going to go through with it again. I want one more reason to not do it. I want as many reasons to be in that moment and be like, oh, I can't do that because of this list. And so I've been trying to add on to that list of undeniable reasons of why not to do it, uh, even though my headspace and my brain is telling me that's the way to go. That is profound. I as a mom, I can't imagine, I, I mean, just the whole scenario. It's it's just a lot. It's a lot to take in. Um, I love what you said 
I needed one more reason not to do this. And then I, yeah. and maybe you, and it, I don't know if you said this or if it just in mind, I pictured this. I don't know if you've written those down. Do you revisit those? Is that something maybe that you have to remind yourself? Because I think, you know, one thing right after my husband died, I remember talking with a counselor at one point and he talked about the definition of hope. And for him, he, he said that the definition of hope is the ability to think of something good coming, that there could be something great about tomorrow, or there could be something to look forward to in life, or there could be a better day than this dark day I feel right now. And he encouraged me to kind of write down some of those things, because it's easy when you're, when you're in the positive mindset, you can, you can feel healthy, you can feel strong, you can say, I've learned these lessons, I know people love me, I know I'm okay, and, and the world will be beautiful tomorrow. But when you're in that dark headspace, it's almost like you have to force yourself. I wrote down several times you said the words, I finally decided. I decided. I knew I needed to change. This this internal awareness, which is so huge, and I'm so grateful you've had that. And yet that awareness alone doesn't fix everything, but it helps you know what you need to face. And that whether it's a list you've written down or just a list you've created in your mind, that there are reasons to stay there are good things ahead that you don't have to feel like you're living your life on a deathbed that you wish would have turned into actual death. And I commend you and admire you for hanging on to that and, and keeping those fights going and being willing to talk about it. You know, I, like I said, I've got seven little kids who I'm sure from time to time they have negative self-talk. And as siblings fight and things go wrong in a household or in life, I'm sure every one of them at some point has said, oh, nobody loves me, nobody cares, or or has those feelings. And how do we be so careful not to let those take over our thoughts? And how do we be mindful of the fact that people need need the, the love from the outside, but it's not enough to just offer the love from the outside. We need to learn how to receive that love. Like you said, you didn't feel worthy of your parents' love. Well, of course, they they view you as worthy, and yet that was a struggle for you to receive, and it's such a complicated situation. But as we, I hope, I'm hopeful that as families and community members, as a culture, as we come together and talk about this more, as we let go of the judgment, I appreciated what you said. You don't judge your friend who took his own life. You don't look at him and say, oh, how selfish, how could he? Because you know what he was feeling. But the heartache is no less. You understand it, but you still wish he were here. And I think having those reasons to stay alive, reasons to stay hopeful, reasons to stick around one more day no matter what battles we're fighting, I think that is such a powerful tool that maybe each of us could learn from and and take a few minutes, whether we write it on a piece of paper or make a note in our phones or I have post-it notes on my closet door to the side of my bed so I see them when I go to sleep and wake up and that there are reasons to live. There are reasons to find joy. There are reasons to find hope and happiness. And that doesn't erase the difficulty of life. But if we can give those positive things the same headspace that we seem so easily to give to the negative things, I hope we can help each other come up and and pull pull each other, pull ourselves out of these dark times. Ledger, what would you tell somebody who's thinking about contemplating suicide? I would try to explain my headspace when I was in the same circumstance and hope that they would relate to what I was doing and see that I myself 
never thought I would get better and had zero hope that I would that I would get out of this. So I hope that they would relate to that and see that I finally did. That there are things you can do, even if it takes a long time, and even if it's very difficult, that there are ways to at least help your mental health, not cure it, because that is very difficult, but help with suicide ideation and everything like that. Would you say that your mental state, not only have you start working on changing your thought patterns, but have you started to understand the love and the depths of love that your family does have for you? Yeah, so that really started at the scene of my crash, where I physically saw the love that my mother had. But yeah, over time, I have really came to realize more and more how many people I negatively affected and how many people care about me and want me to keep fighting and know that that's not what's the best thing for me. And would you say that you've started to see the joy in life? Do you start to understand that you have your own light and your own gifts to share with others? That we're not just here for our own misery or our own self-pleasure, but but there's also a gift to be given in contributing. Yeah, so I'm really starting to um, try to figure out what I want to do with my future, what will make me happy. Um, I'm realizing some of the things that are making me happy right now, and I really want to build on what those things are so I can have them in my normal lifestyle on a day-to-day basis. That's awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. So tell us, what does resilience mean to you? So resilience to me is, so the definition is the capacity to recover quickly from difficult difficulties slash toughness. I like to hope that everyone has resilience and sometimes it is not a quick recovery, but everyone has that option to keep fighting and to figure out what will help them out of this hole of mental illness that they are digging themselves into. Absolutely. Absolutely. We all do have it. And we'd like to talk about on the show a lot about how it's a muscle. And so if you don't use it, it doesn't get stretched. It doesn't get exercised. It doesn't get stronger. But if you can start to understand what those tools are and build traits and characteristics, which you are doing that right now, and, you know, you may feel like, I know that when I was 18, at least, I felt, I felt like, oh, I'm an adult now, and now it's going to be easy. And that's not exactly how life works. But the interesting thing is, is that figuring this out now in your life will make any challenge that comes your way in the future easier to deal with. Not that it will be easy right. to deal with, right? but you will be able to recover more quickly you will be able to have some tools. Your arsenal mm-hmm. will get bigger, right? Your tools in your toolbox will become larger and you will be able to overcome whatever challenges that you may have ahead of you. And one of them may be mental health. You may struggle with that your whole life. Some people do and that's okay. And we need to talk about that. Yeah, We need to talk about it. it's okay that we struggle. It's really helpful if we all work towards talking about it, being honest and being vulnerable about it. Yeah, I definitely think my mental health will 
uh, stretch throughout my whole life. Although I think that I'm much better at handling the thoughts and the actions that come from my mental illness. And although I know it'll, there will be difficult times, I know that I will have more tools to help myself through those difficult times in adulthood. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today and sharing this story with us. It's really, it's a powerful story. I think it's a conversation that needs to be had. I I really do believe that you will help other kids your age, other adults that are struggling right now. Other parents or other loved parents. ones who watch someone struggle. This has been very informative. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I think, again, it's a conversation that we need to be have and a rare one to have because so many people will continue that shame instead of talking about, mm-hmm. I did this, you, you know, and I think it's a powerful story. I am sorry that you've had to deal with mental illness. It's not easy, but I'm really proud that you've been able to see the impacts of what those choices would actually look like and make choices that are better for you. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us today send you all my love and support. I think the world of you and I just, I really appreciate your vulnerability. Thank you. And thank you for having me, giving me a place to uh, break the stigma of uh, mental health. Yeah. Thank you for being willing to share. And I know I speak for both me and Michelle when I say, Hey, we're rooting for you. Yeah, We've got absolutely. your back. If, if you ever need yep. a stranger that you need to talk to invent, we are here. I know Michelle's not as much of a stranger to you as I am, but I think it's important that we vocalize that we're rooting for you. We're here for you. We're, we're cheering you on and, and we're cheering each other on. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us through this difficult conversation. And yet so important to break that stigma, to open the conversation. If you're listening to this, there's probably somebody in your life that you could have a similar conversation about mental illness with. There's probably someone that you could maybe ask some difficult questions or maybe try to lend a listening ear. And I hope that's something we can all take away from today's conversation. We also hope if you're listening that you'll find us on your favorite podcast platform and like and subscribe to the show. Leave us any reviews and also send us any referrals. If you or someone you know has a story about real life that you're willing to share, please contact us. You can email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com or find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient and Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. Thank you. And remember, whatever you do today... Be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their own lives. Have a great day. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.